0: Run toward the pain, run toward it. Don't run away from it because that's your reward. That's where the success is going to happen. Like we all think we learn from positive, we don't. You don't learn when you're driving safely down the road every day. You learn when you're in a snowstorm and the roads are slick.
1: From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Sandy Dunn, CISO and founder of Quark IQ. Sandy spent years with the blues in healthcare before pivoting to a startup. What came next was a layoff with lasting career lessons. As Sandy embarks on her next step, she joins us to cover how she manages mentorship and embraces life's challenges. CISOs are no stranger to internal and external adversaries. That's why a passion for problem solving and an understanding of people are both key to success. So, when is it right to admit that you don't understand? And how can you find and maintain an authentic mentor mentee relationship? And ultimately, why is failure so pivotal to growth? Sandy Dunn, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. If you would, for the uninitiated, as I always say, who are you? What do you do? And introduce yourself, please.
0: Hi, Steve. Great to be here. I'm Sandy Dunn. I am the founder and lead consultant at Quark IQ. Um, I've been a CISO for the last eight years and in a number of different businesses, healthcare, and also a startup. So excited to come talk to you about kind of what I do and what I know.
1: Now, your newest venture is extremely new. I knew you from Blue Cross of Idaho, and then you were recently with a company known as Breach Quest as well. Talk to us a little bit about that. How long were you at Blue Cross of Idaho? Maybe go there.
0: Six years. I was with Blue Cross of Idaho, I five or six years. I believe it was six years.
1: And then with Breach Quest?
0: I was um, seven months.
1: So we're going to unpack a lot of Breach Quest in Idaho later, but when we had an earlier chat, and I'll, I'll frame this up a little bit, I think often one really nice thing about the show is we've had so many great guests, and and they all are extremely unique and have all this sort of powerful stuff to say, but it can sometimes be this sort of wall in a way for everybody thinks that they will, you know, I have to sort of level up to some of the big names or even not big names that have been on. And as we were sort of discussing some of this, your statement really to me that was really to yourself was, what's the most compelling thing about me or about Sandy? And you were sort of phrasing that to yourself, I think, out on a run. So I'm going to let you lead off with that. So you were sort of focusing on what's compelling. And I certainly argue there's a lot, but you led off with a couple of themes what is what's the compelling elements of of sandy
0: well i think the the thing that people might find the most interesting about me is i'm not a superstar in anything you know i'm determined and i'm persistent you know i haven't written my own algorithm or anything and so i've found a, a place where i can be very successful in the cybersecurity world using those skills being able to come in and ask questions and my love of the theory of constraints and understanding process and my passion for creating systems that work well. So I think the most compelling thing about me is I'm not what you would necessarily think of as the most brilliant person in the room.
1: So when you aren't or aren't professing to be or are not acting like the most brilliant person in the room, what does that afford you? I I have my own ideas, but what, if you are or exhibit that, what does that afford you in terms of team leadership, meeting leadership or meeting management, I should say, what does that afford you?
0: I think the benefit to, to not feeling like I had to prove anything you know, like not trying to be the most brilliant person in the room allowed me to ask the questions that nobody else would ask. And what historically what I found is I was brave enough to ask it because, you know, I don't mind looking like I'm an idiot. And by asking, well, I don't understand. Or can you explain it one more time? That doesn't I can't connect the dots yet. What I often discovered was one of two things. A, I identified a gap because I, you know, there was a lot of assumptions. And B, often I was asking a question that a lot of people in the room wanted to ask, but weren't comfortable asking. And so that's been I've found to help me with my success was I was willing to go out there and say, hey, I'm just a goofball, but I don't get it. Can you explain it one more time? So it has, I would say. You know, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome, and I actually don't like it. I don't like the word very much because I really believe that we're all just out here bringing our own skills to the table and no one's great at everything. But I think that that's what I'm kind of saying is anytime that you feel like, hey, I'm not sure I should be here, I'm telling you, you should be in that room because you have a different role than the person maybe up there presenting or the two geniuses that are sitting there. Trying to discuss something like you, you have a different role and it's an important one.
1: I have seen in many phases of my career the kind of how quote unquote experts can rule a room or overpower one. And a derivative of that is often the CISO or the security leader in the room kind of calling all the shots and. The situation that happens typically is everyone's waiting for the most senior person to say something or they defer automatically to that person. And you you get this habit that's formed. And it is, I think, one of the most dangerous conditions you can operate in because everyone's waiting for the boss. And you have to be careful also, just for the listener. If you do have a strong personality and you are in leadership, if you state your opinion first, or if you state it as fact, or even the direction that you want to go, it can pollute a better idea that exists in the mind of one of your staffers or one of the people in the meetings. You have to be extremely careful of this. As an adjunct to that, playing the role that Sandy's talking about and saying, hey, not being afraid to say, hey, I don't know it all. This doesn't make sense. I don't know. Explain this. I think there's a people of all types that have an aversion to saying, I don't know. So, those two things don't pollute the opinion. You know, state it last if you're forming one. And then don't be afraid to say, I don't know. That is a, especially as you, as you move up to say, I don't know. Be strong enough to say that confidently and then follow on correctly, which is, I'm not sure. Let's figure it out. I'll get back to you. Right. Those are giant brick walls that I see all the time. And so I think approaching it kind of with an element of humility, but also not being afraid of the immediate opinion of those in the room is a very positive thing. I think we lack that too much.
0: I agree with you, Steve. I think as a leader, you you really have, you have to wear both hats. One is you're humble enough to say, go ahead and challenge my ideas. I, as well as I'm sure you have, have seen the mistakes where someone won't be allowed to hear that they're not correct. And it's, you know, it's a classic case of the emperor doesn't have any clothes. Like, to me, it's shocking that anyone would lead that way because it's so dangerous. That means that if you aren't absolutely the most brilliant person in the whole wide world, it's very possible you're going to lead everyone down a bad path. But you also have, as a leader, you have to be strong enough to say, nope. I appreciate everyone's opinion and view. I've taken all of this and my own analysis into consideration and this is the direction we're going to go. So you still have to be strong enough to lead and everyone has to trust that you made the right decision, but uh, again, I certainly I always want to know everyone's thought. And and that's really diversity to me. That's, you know, a, lo- a lot of times when we talk about diversity, we get caught up in kind of the more uh, external, obvious physical traits, color, gender, those kind of things. But to me, diversity is having a mix of different ways to solve a problem. And oftentimes that does come from different ways that your background, but diversity is making sure that you have a whole group of people that can help you form a good, solid answer from different views.
1: Completely agree. Often the one of the fastest, it's not the best, but the way to have early wins is do i see a team that of all levels have an equal voice do i see a team that have a, a differing voice and is there a mechanism in place where they can sort of discuss that openly and in in a constructive way and are and are willing to share you know one of my old rules was no matter your title everyone sort of has an equal voice or equal vote is what i would say when we're trying to make a decision about our future as an organization as a team and so we would have, you know, know, what do you think? And it was often be an intern uh, giving a, giving feedback, right? So having that in there is incredibly important. I think the other thing you mentioned, and, and this is in an earlier conversation, and you were hesitant to bring this part up, but I think it's worth adding into the show. You talked about the benefit of sometimes having a softer side, which I, I wouldn't say is what we've covered already, but it's a, it's a little bit adjacent to it. But you talked about sort of the benefit of being a mother, but also being in an executive. And and it kind of, you were framing it in a way that I thought was very nice and helpful and kind of new and an idea that hasn't been shared before. You were a little bit hesitant. Hopefully you're still not. But what does that mean to sort of the management and leadership of teams and people?
0: Yeah, I think that a lot of what we learn. I mean, it's all about motivating people to make the right decision and to do the right thing. And anyone who's raised a two year old realizes the complexities of trying to talk to someone who doesn't generally understand exactly why you're asking them to do something and getting them to happily follow what you're trying to do. So I'll give you an example. If you want your child to eat vegetables instead of sugar, going in and presenting it to them and saying, well, I'm going to leave this choice up to you, but the carrots give you superpowers and the candy actually is like kryptonite for Superman and it makes you weaker. You know, so when you you start approaching problems, so how I bring that into the workplace is saying instead of going in and trying to be a dictator, I go in and say, well, here's the direction I'd like to go this is the positive choice and here's the choice that I don't want you to make. So let me present it in a way that makes sense to you. So it's really about managing, having relationships with people, whether it's people who report to you, whether it's people that are at your same management level, having establishing some sort of cooperation or, you know, layers and layers above you, we're all still just people. And I think for me, being a mother really helped me understand putting someone else's needs and well-being ahead of my own. And that's made me a better leader and a better employee.
1: I think that's a very strong point of putting needs, especially of your employees, your direct employees, ahead of your own. Now, you can't, the old saying is you can't pour from an empty glass. You have to watch it. Otherwise, you'll find yourself kind of empty. But having that mindset of making sure they eat first, if you will, to use another leadership sort of axiom, that would be extremely valuable in sort of the preservation of the team. But also, you phrased something you phrased when in our conversation, you were talking about like why is this person having a tantrum? And I think we've all seen situations where leadership people that maybe our boss or maybe other executives I've seen it countless times where it's it's a tantrum and they're losing their mind how do you you know managing that in the moment and I think those that know me well would say I've got a fairly combustible temperament or at least used to I've mellowed out a lot but when combustible temperament Steve is faced with somebody having a tantrum like that didn't always go well like that was you know especially if it was sort of an adversarial kind of thing not not inside baseball but another area or division boy it it sometimes didn't end well so I think the tantrum management is another element that's probably great practice for the C-suite.
0: Yeah, I would say, you know, I've been a a lifelong horse person my whole life. And it's, again, children, horses, you know, just people, you know, I'll go in and and I'll start working with a horse and start training them. And first thing I want to know is, I want to understand you. How do you think if I do this? Does that upset you? You know, like, what? how does your mind work? And so a lot of it is, of course, what drew me into cybersecurity is the puzzle. Like, I'm analytical. I always want to know why dots connect and how I can make them do the things that I want them to do. And so I transfer just all of my personal experience and how I do things. I bring it back into the workplace. I am honestly at my central being. I'm just I love puzzles and I love trying to figure everything out. I've been talking to a lot of people I've been interviewing lately. And one of the things I say all the time is, to be honest with you, the bigger the mess, the better I like it. I absolutely love a complete dumpster fire because I'm like, oh, this is interesting. You know, like, how am I going to figure this out? So yes, I would say all of those facets and back to that diversity thing, I think that's why it's so important to have different views and bring people. I did a career coaching on Saturday with a bunch of new graduates from BSU, Boise State University, and looking at resumes and these kids were showing me, you know, they had like skills and all of the classes they took and all the tools and then recent graduate. And I'm like, well, have you never had a job? Have you never, you know, like is this you? And they're like, oh no, I did this, 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 and this. And I said, get that on there. That stuff's important. When I interview someone, I actually don't like to see that all I've done is cybersecurity and IT. I want tell me that you are a waitress and you understand what customer service is because cybersecurity is a service to the business. I want you to know that you can handle an unhappy customer. The more diverse. Experience and exposure that you bring to the table, I think that's a benefit to the team. It gives, again, that adds that different amount of perspective that helps everyone. I was just talking with my friend Shauna Hoffer. She just hired a nurse. This lady is a nurse and onto her cybersecurity team. She said, You know what? She is a CISO at a hospital. And she said, I can teach her this cybersecurity stuff. But she brings so much to our team just because she's a nurse and she's been out there trying to do this stuff.
1: I want to go to that. Isn't it crazy that a nurse, which is a hell of a lot of education and an extremely important role in our world that we don't need to go into the, the details of why the move made, but isn't that fascinating on several levels? One, hiring a nurse. I think that's fantastic. If the nurse wants to work in InfoSec, brilliant. Uh, Over half the people in my last position I had of the the team were non-Infosec people. They were generally IT, but some didn't even have an IT background. So I applaud that greatly. I found that fascinating that a nurse would want to go into Infosec. I think that almost sounds unheard of, but I I really enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you've seen it too. There's a lot of people that think that all we do is sit around and pen test, and that looks really fun. So I'm also an adjunct professor at BSU, and I teach. And There's a lot of people who jump into this field with misconceptions of what it is and what kind of personal skills that you bring to the table that will help you be successful. And you've got to love challenges. You've got to love trying to untangle this huge mess. You also have to be passionate about cybersecurity. You have to have it in the very core of your well-being, not only that you want to protect your organization, but you see it as In my opinion, that you see it as a national role that we as cybersecurity professionals are responsible for—that it's on us to help protect our organizations, our families, our data. It is a calling, but it's funny because within five minutes I can go, "This isn't going to work for you." I don't always tell them that up front, but within a five-minute conversation, I can tell if they're a fit or not. I had a conversation with a gentleman. Two days ago, and no college degree, has been a real estate agent, has worked, you know, he's had this really diverse career. And I just, I was like, this is the guy. This guy's going to do awesome. And he's just learning now. But it was just, you can hear the passion, you can hear the enthusiasm. It's in their blood, I guess, in their DNA.
1: (laughs) I absolutely agree. There has to be something in you that drives you to want to continue to do the job because it's often it can be thankless it can be exhausting and it's by some measures it's almost impossible like you are it's a state where you're guaranteed failure the bad day factor can be very high and sometimes the good day factor can be kind of low even a great day is still man it's still a grind because there's all this sort of maintenance activity there's all there's audit activity that never stops there's the adversary cycles that are ongoing There's the performance and availability of your gear. There's the changes with the business. There's the changing opinions of what you should or shouldn't be doing that are influenced by internal politics. You are getting hit. You are an island. You have both internal and external adversaries, and not all of them are meaning to be. And it's sort of a no-win-impossible sort of thing, but you have to want that. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. My role now is a little different personally, but sort of was carrying a pager for almost 20 years kind of scenario, right? So when you get people who just exude the wrong kind of thing, you can kind of tell this may not work or this may not be long for you. For you, you said within five minutes, you can kind of call this is not going to work. What are some things that call out to you when you interview that you think, ah, this is kind of a red flag? Is there anything in particular that you would say was like, hey, this you know, hey, kid, this probably isn't your path, what would that be?
0: If they're asking me questions that they could find with a quick Google search, I'm immediately going, this isn't going to work for you. I get asked to be a mentor quite frequently, and I do as much of it as I possibly can. I'm so thankful for all of the people who help me. But it's very frequently I will get someone who is asking me, Questions that they absolutely should have Googled. And to me, that's like, okay, if if you're not curious enough to actually try to figure this out on your own, this will be frustrating for you. And it'll be frustrating for the people who try to work with you.
1: I mean, it's amazing they would go to the effort of finding a mentor or be in that process and approach the effort of the relationship with just such sloth to not do that. I've seen it myself, sadly, but yeah, that's obviously a huge kind of red flag as well. You, I want to go back to something you said earlier. Uh, you said you're an adjunct professor at BSU and kind of working on a workshop. This is something kind of a call out that I'd like you to expand on a little bit, but resume review for everyone, especially kids, young adults, but even senior folks, to have a circle of people that you can trust that will review your resume. You know, maybe three or four people, it may not maybe just two. So both having that and then doing that, I can't I can't stress how important that is. The one more thing I'll add to that, and then I'd like to get your kind of take of all of that, is my goal is always never to need a resume. You're kind of known well enough that you get the phone call rather than needing one. But until until you get to that point, which you may never, you have to have kind of your crew. You, You need a couple mentors or peers. But then I think you also should be reviewing others' resumes as well. So what was that scenario that allowed you to do the resume review? Is that just part of your adjunct professor role, or is it something else that you did at BSU?
0: It was a cybersecurity career day that they brought in several industry professionals to come in and just for kids to ask questions and do a mock interviews and look at resumes. But, Steve, I can't even tell you, it was so fun. You know, I know sometimes we're all tired. We have full-time jobs. We've got all this other stuff that we're trying to do. But anytime that you go get back and see, help some of these other people, it was just fantastic. You know, I had so many people come in and tell me about, oh, you're Sandy Dent. So, so I teach online. You know, I meet students, but it's, they, it's all pre-recorded and they go through it. And I've developed the course and we, we do Zoom meetings during the week. But a lot of times it's not like being in a classroom where you can like really meet and talk to people and stuff. And so I got to meet so many students who had t- taken my class and they were you know, like, wow, that was the best class ever. And it helped me with everything that, you know, every other course I took that really helped. But the ones that really get me excited is when someone comes in and says, Wow, I took your course and I went in, did an interview and like all I had to do was just respond with what you said. And then now I have this job that I'm making twice what I was before. So it, it's just so awesome to be able, as you probably know, the more you give, the more you get. It, it rewards you 10 times more than it does them, I think. But I had one more thing I wanted to share. So uh, prior to several jobs ago, I was busy job hunting. I was looking for a CISO role. This person was looking for a very technical role and we became job hunting buddies together. And it was such a great experience because, you know, as you know, when you're out job hunting and applying and interviewing and doing all of that kind of stuff, it can be a little disheartening. I mean, your resume goes into a a deep dark hole or you go through the grind of getting asked 20 questions and then not getting hired. So we were each other's support systems. So we would share what jobs we were applying for and we would make sure that the person had tweaked their resume the right way. And we would do mock interviews to each other. And it was, wow. We keep threatening to do a talk on it because it was such a great experience to have a support system as you go through and and try to go find that next role.
1: Having that network and exercising really all of of what you just described. I think people in this industry sometimes believe that everyone is sort of superhuman and just has this stuff all figured out, like alone. And the reality is that, that you have to have a network of friends that are, at minimum, are out there and connected into maybe there's new openings someplace, right? Maybe they need help. So who are the people that you go to to keep your ear to the ground for new opportunity? an opportunity may not even be a job it might be guest lecturing somewhere it might be speaking at an event it might be some other sort of enrichment activity for you or someone else but as you noted it's you have to be that before you can receive that which is the the other piece you've got to you kind of have to pay in, in a way and it sometimes takes time so for those that are wanting to do this it doesn't just happen overnight it's it, it takes time it doesn't start off just it's not magic
0: i completely agree steve and i think that you know i don't love the you know the mentor mentee words you know because i don't think it has to be official i think it's just relationship building really and when you're going out and you're relationship building if there's a rock star in the room this person that you just go wow that person I don't know how they did this, but whatever they did, it's amazing. And I'd, I'd really like to understand more about how they work. Go shake their hand and say, wow, I really admire however you came into that. But don't ask to be their mentee. Ask them what they're working on and, and if there's any area that you can support them. Oh, you're doing this crazy thing. Oh, great. Do you need someone to help you review your test documentation? I'd love to do that. Then all of a sudden you're contributing And you're building that relationship, you're helping, you're getting closer, you're understanding more about how that amazing person works. But you're not just saying, hey, give me the magic feather so that I don't have to do all the work to figure out how you got to the place that you're at.
1: I think that's worth stating again. A lot of people may not, in their own mind, have the time for or be comfortable with even being a mentor. They may have their own doubts about themselves, but you may need help related to something that they're really good at that's the other thing don't make the mistake that just because someone's a mentor that they're good at everything making it human personal i'm good at like three things and i'm really good at those three things and i'm shit at the rest of it and so you have to know what do i delegate out what do i hire in somebody that can help with that or just know your weaknesses know your strengths So they may not feel like they have a strength in mentorship. So you may need to go in and say, hey, I'm working on something similar or, hey, you know, I'm serious about this. I'd like to help out and get some more experience in this. I'm really good at X, Y, Z. Can we talk next week about this or can we get coffee now and talk about it? Whatever that is. And they're more likely to say yes in that regard. And especially in the example you're talking about, hey, you're at a conference or you meet somebody. I think that's and I think also if you say, will you be my mentor? A mentorship is a very personal thing. It's, you know, the core of it is, you know, there used to be an apprenticeship and a mentorship. It was a long term. The original apprenticeship was seven years, which roughly translates to a 10,000 hour rule, which I won't even go down that rat hole. There's math behind that where you become you know, a journeyman. But this is, that's it's more of a, a student teacher kind of thing. You just might need help. It's a different scenario, right? And so I think calling that out, the difference is is an excellent point.
0: Well, and the other thing I would just hark you back to several, as I said, I I try to help as many people as I can. And often they're like, "Okay, that's awesome. And then I'm having to schedule the meetings. I'm having to do all of the I just added more work to my plate. If you want to be a mentee and have that mentor really enjoy working with you, offer to do the work like you set up the meetings, you find the time on the calendar, like you do the work and then they're going to be more open. I have a relationship right now where I'm just very close to saying, I, "I'm sorry, I, I, I can't do this anymore because she has a, you know, almost impossible schedule, and I have to somehow squeeze my calendar to figure out, and I have to schedule meetings. I'm like, why am I doing this?
1: I have a, a good friend who is talking about this, not about mentor mentee, but just friendship in general. And his statement is, you know, we all run into people out in the world and their acquaintances, maybe they're even friends. And they say, oh, we should get dinner. We should get coffee. And he, if you tell him that he absolutely hates that. And he's like, well, okay. Like then take the initiative just to set that up. Like don't make the occasion, the chance encounter the vehicle to say that and then not follow up, which is what most people do, right? Just do it. Just do it. Stop with these fake platitudes of, oh yeah, we should hang out. We should, okay, then hang out. Yeah. It's, it's a weird social thing we have. It's especially in, in, in the States here. Yeah. Do the work, carry the water. Like you set up the meetings and I would expect exactly the same. And if I were asking for the help, then I would do the same. I would gladly set up the meetings, set up the zoom calls, find the place to meet, ask what's close to them, whatever. I want to spend a, a little more time on recent sort of career moves you've made. So you were at the blues for quite a while. That's how I met you. But I want to pick your brain on moving from the blues, which is very, I would say, more traditional, more stable. You probably have a a real good idea what your budget's going to be each year. There's not wide, you know, wild swings, larger organization. You went from that to a startup, which it couldn't be any more different in a way. And I made a similar move going from a giant company to the time a 100-person company, and it, it's been great. But you made that move. Walk us through um, what went into your thinking at first to leave the safety of the blue to go on an adventure that is a startup. What was the trigger for you on that? Talk to us about that move.
0: So as you said, I mean, the joining any type of blues organization, the blues is a fantastic system. You know, I had a great team. And the other thing about being part of the blue system is you really have a whole group of other CISOs and people that are there to help you with, you're all doing kind of the same thing. And so it's a great place to do cybersecurity. You know, you're part of HISAC. A, I can't say enough good things about the health insurance business that I was a part of. But like you said, it's pretty standard. I mean, we all, uh, you and I both experience having incidents. I mean, we definitely have our days that go badly, but all in all, it's pretty consistent. And I just had gotten to the point where there was always work. You know, I always have a full schedule. I always have another thing I want to learn, but I just wasn't growing at the level I personally wanted to grow. And in hindsight, I think I jumped out of the airplane, grabbed a parachute, and didn't even really think I was so excited to get to the island. I didn't probably plan as much as I should have or or try to understand what I was doing as much as I did. You know, you can overthink this stuff. There is a point where sometimes I think you just got to jump in with two feet and see if you can survive. But I really wanted to grow and I wanted to grow fast. And so a startup offered me the perfect opportunity to do that.
1: So there's a balance. You can certainly overthink it by all measures. I had a myself had a perfect job at my prior employer. Those that listen know where that was. Great organization, had amazing people. I mean, to the point that the people that were four levels below where the CISO was are now becoming SISOs themselves, four levels down from and this is just not that many years ago. I mean, the talent was amazing, the mission was amazing, but due to several circumstances, it, it just wasn't it, it wasn't where I wanted to go long term. And I think recognizing that and making this scary change is a good move for a lot of people. The question often is what does a CISO do after they're a CISO? Right. Maybe they're a different kind of CISO. Maybe they go to a different type of environment. I think this is there's another culture when you work for a, a a startup or a company that that makes a product, you're closer to the business in a way. So I think it's a, a great option. I'd highly recommend it. But you said something that I think is interesting. Don't overthink it, but maybe you didn't pack enough supplies, you know, you grabbed your chute, but maybe you didn't have enough, you know, stuff in your backpack. What were the things that you maybe missed? Or what are the things that you'd recommend to people to consider before they make a move like you did?
0: The key learning to me was I trusted too much. I put too much trust in what people were telling me. You know, what I would do in if I ever do something similar again, I would say, Hey, that sounds great. Show me. You know, show me. Give me confidence that what you're saying, not just you have a great idea and Put some, you know, make sure don't just trust, (laughs) you know, get some evidence. The plan is a good one and is well thought out and they are capable at taking this. You know, any startup is risky, but there's also there's risk and then there's suicide missions. I
1: will tell you that my small piece of advice is also look at who are the investors and who is in charge of sales, who's the CRO, who is running sales, Uh, what's their track record. It's not enough to have an amazing technical idea. That's a great place to be, but it actually takes a lot more to, if you're going to actually be part of something and help make it grow. And the other shift I'll tell you is that not all of what you'll be doing, I don't have an operational role today, but many would. But you're not just in charge of security. You're also everyone is an implement of the company. So everyone is helping feedback with product. Everyone is helping to some degree with sales, with thought leadership, and and really you you talk about showing proof. Just get good definitions on what a success look like, and what really will be my happiness. Yeah, I, I think that's incredibly important. Any other thoughts on? Is it questions you wish you would have asked? You wanted more detail and you were there seven months, right? And so that's kind of tells how long the journey was or the time in the journey, but anything else in general, right? You got listeners here that are, they're thinking about the same kind of move and I, it's one I highly recommend, but anything else that Sandy would recommend, especially for someone who hasn't worked in a startup before, that's the key piece
0: learn about startups learn about pitch decks learn about all of the things that startups need to do to be ARR and it is they how they have to be able to get to the next stage is much different than a traditional business so definitely do more homework than is would be my suggestion
1: yeah what is the real goal what is their definition of an exit is it acquisition is it going public is it getting acqu- like what what is that Um, yeah, there's a lot that goes into that. And, and I think that it's a different set of responsibilities. It's very, the other thing I'll say, it's very fast, very fast decisions are made much more quickly.
0: The other thing that, again, you know, the evidence, which is if I had had said, okay, that sounds great. It's a great idea. You've got talented people, show me a roadmap and like, show me a timeline and all of the pieces in that timeline, that would have, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but I think I would have picked up earlier that, oh, wait a minute, I'm not 100% sure they understand how software development goes. You know, I came out of that world when I worked for HP. So I'm very familiar with, you know, releasing a brand new product and all of the things that have to go into that. And so that's probably the one thing that I, I assumed everyone had done this before and that was not the case.
1: Yeah, product security is is a big one. And it's something that, honestly, a lot of CISOs haven't done or they haven't come up through that because the product of what they have, it's a little different when you're sort of selling. It's it's one if you're developing a product that is sort of consumed internally or it may even have an external focus or an external lens, but you're sort of selling this via a contract. You, in a way, are partially developing the product, being closer to the "quote unquote" business where the money's made, and then you have to insert yourself, and and you're directly, maybe more directly than ever before, either slowing down or inhibiting or enhancing to a greater degree beyond what you've probably felt directly before, and that could be a, a huge point of friction if not done correctly. So this gets into a little more of a tough spot, but it's also it has a silver lining, I think. Maybe a gold mining. So you spent seven months at your prior position and there was a big layoff and you went through that and, and you equated it a little bit. This is a very human sort of assignment of feeling, but I think it's important to share. Um, you were there and you, you equated almost feeling like a divorce, which is you've at a personal level, you've had to go through there's sort of a connected emotion, not a great feeling, but. Maybe talk to us a little bit about that and then kind of why you're feeling better, if you would.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I got laid off the day before I had been asked to come do career coaching, you know, mock interviews and resumes for a bunch of students. And it was this crazy feeling. It was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm definitely the right person to be talking about the right way. I just got laid off, you know, like definitely come talk to me about how to manage your career. But I love, I have loved the last seven months. I mean, in some ways, you can say like that wasn't successful, you know, like that was very costly. You know, you, you traded a whole lot of income for a lot, whole lot of future. I met just some people that will be part of my tribe forever. Like it, it I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. I mean, it's just, it was fantastic. And I also, I'm kind of embracing, the fact, like it's okay to fail, it's okay to make a mistake, and just you know, sometimes we get so caught up in our careers and you know our trajectories and you know making sure that we never have to to ever go submit a resume or go through an interview process again. I'm actually embracing kind of the realness of it because I, I think it's good to remember that you don't want to think that you're beyond all of it. It's good to remember what it takes to grind and go through it and you're never done. I was watching some football videos and they were talking about, you know, you win the Super Bowl but you start at the the very first practice session after you win the Super Bowl, you come in and it's like guess what, nobody cares what you did. You got to go prove yourself today. And I think that's important to remember that like hey, it doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you know. Go prove yourself today. Go show that you can win. You just embrace it. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, there is some sort of a. I think the word I you and I I used when you and I were talking briefly was shame. Like I'm embarrassed. I just got laid off. But I think anytime you have a failure, you can go in and it's your choice how you address it. You you get to go in and say, I mean, I I, I have a hard time even people keep saying, oh, I'm sorry you got laid off. I'm like, no, it's awesome. I had a great experience. It's business. It happens. But I'm really excited about what I'm doing today. And it—you know I have a great group of people I always keep in touch with. I learned so much. I actually accomplished. I, le- I learned more in the last seven months than I had for a long time because I was in it. I had to.
1: I think that's a really important point to make is how much are you learning? And sometimes when you're learning things, you don't even know you're learning them until it's over. In the midst of a problem and a crisis, uh, a work situation, whatever it is, boy, you look back and think, damn. I remember talking to my father about sort of these similar themes and he's gone sadly, but goddamn all the advice he had on this, he'd say, you know, that you're going to look back. You think it's bad right now, but you're going to look back and think this is one of the better points of your life. Like the goal or the struggle is often the the pleasure is in the fight, is in the pursuit. And he would often say that and hell, if he wasn't right, you know, looking back at some of the worst days that I had and professionally and personally. And now I look back on that and think what strength that has given me. And it's something that it's a calming effect. When I go into meetings or situations now, it is a very quiet talk about comfort and confidence because a lot of what I've done, a lot of the failures that I've been a part of are so unique it's actually a strength. And it took me a long time to figure that out.
0: Yeah, and I agree. Run toward the pain. Run toward it. Don't run away from it because that that's your reward. That's where the success is going to happen. Like we all think we learn from positive. We don't. You don't learn when you're driving safely down the road every day. You learn when you're in a snowstorm and the roads are slick. And, you know, like that's when the route. You know, like, look for those opportunities that scare the hell out of you. I mean, that's what I believe. That's what I like to do. Now, I think we're all different. Like, I like to run toward the pain. But some people, that's not a comfortable place for them. And I think that they're the people in customer service taking the calls and doing a great job there.
1: Sandy, I've got one more question. We're about out of time. And it's the question we ask every guest. And it is, pursuant to the name of the show, The new CISO, which applies in this situation for sure. What does being a new CISO mean to you? And also state the name of your new company again for us, please.
0: Absolutely. So being a new CISO to me is constant evolving. Like always theory of constraints, like always, always try to figure out how to make it better, more efficient, a better experience for your end user, a better experience for your customer's keep turning the notch, running the notch up. You know, how do you contribute back to the community? Strong believer that no one, no one can secure an organization by themselves. We've got to be able to collaborate and cooperate with people in our field, in our industry. I'm super excited about the MITRE stuff that with the defend and the attack stuff as, you know, CISA, the red eye solution that just came out. There's so many great advances that we've made as an industry. So I think that's my answer is being a new CISO means you're always evolving. You're always trying to make it increase security within the community and for people.
1: And the name of your new company again?
0: Quark IQ.
1: We'll put a link as well. Make sure we have that. Sandy, so much great information shared by you today. And I can't thank you enough for being on our show.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
1: That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.